Hello, my name's Maria Watton and this is the Seeing Stories podcast. A podcast all about stories, mythological, traditional, fictional, societal, all kinds of narratives. And today we're going to be discussing memoir, life story, with one of our greatest living storytellers, Liz Weir, MBE. I'm delighted to be exploring the storyteller's story. And what a story it is. Welcome, Liz Weir. Thank you, Maria. It's a great pleasure to be with you. You know what? It's fantastic. I mean, over this pandemic period, Liz, you have been writing. You know what? Can you tell us about it? Well, I will. Obviously, as a storyteller who's used to being out and about with people, almost every day when the pandemic came and I had to go into lockdown it was a real shock to my system and to tell you the truth I went into sort of a deep dive of depression now for the first three weeks I couldn't really do anything I got the novelty you know of maybe cooking tasty meals for myself because I'm all alone in a very isolated place and that seemed great I didn't have to get up and drive and that was grand and then at the back of my head I thought you know you have a grant, I actually have a grant from the Arts Council Mm. of Northern Ireland to support the writing of my story, my memoir. So it took me, I'm sure, three or four weeks before I got into it. And then I just started and I've had to be very disciplined. It's been hard at times. And I've written, I think, 142,000 words over the last period of weeks. Yeah. And I mean, I've been privileged to be able to read your first draft. And I have to tell you, Um, This is a book that people will really want to read. If you want to know what life's like as a storyteller, you know, read this book. (laughs) Um, But, you know, Liz, there's so much in the book um, and I loved it all. But it would be great to start actually with you as a child um and your mom um she stayed at home with you didn't she do you want to tell us she a bit did. about um I'm what they call in Northern Ireland a wee late and that means that all the others were grown up I mean the next to me is 10 years older and I had a brother and sister one of whom was in the air force and one was engaged to be married when I came along so I was almost like an only child um my father had been a career soldier um though obviously he was back I was born in 1950 and uh my mum was quite a formidable person who'd had to cope all the time daddy had been away as a soldier he'd been all sorts of places he'd been to Dunkirk he'd been to Palestine he'd been to all sorts of places and so I grew up in a very almost a rural area it's all built up now but it was in the outskirts of a big town called Ballymena and uh, I had a fairly idyllic childhood in terms of Mm. my pets my animals but I was quite a solitary child. And di- and did your mom tell you stories? Well, you see, people think because I'm a storyteller, I must have heard all these, you know, Irish myths and legends. My mother was born in Gravesend in Kent. So the mm. stories she told were stories from her childhood. She told stories, you know, she would read me lots of books, books she loved, like The Water Baby. She was a great reader. She'd talk about Charles Dickens. She'd tell me those sort of things. But I didn't hear traditional stories at all growing up, really, um, except maybe in school you'd hear about how Loch Ness and the Isle of Man got formed by the giant Finn McCool. But apart from that, there were, 
most of our education wasn't about Ireland. It was about, you know, British history and that sort of thing. So no, although what stories were told and mum was a good storyteller and daddy was an entertainer. He took concert mm. parties out. He took them to soirees and guest teas and so on in, in local halls. He was the MC and he had a fine mm. tenor voice and I'd be sort of dragged out on stage and we sit out dressed to sing. But I was mm. a painfully shy little girl and that was a bit of a nightmare for me. I liked to sing, but I didn't like 200 people looking at me you know yeah but but that's actually one of the things that I loved about your story how that someone who is I think a little bit like myself you know I'm quite a quiet person and probably a bit of an introvert for myself but how you developed and became a storyteller who can work with such huge groups and huge audiences um and, you know, I just have to say, Liz, as well, your your own story is full of amazing stories. And before we go on to that, I tell you, there are so many uh, stories. I, I, you know, I, I won't take up the whole time, but I would really love you to relate to me. There was a part in it when you're talking about your childhood Um no, actually, you're talking about your mom and how your mom went over to India. Yeah. And then this, you know, that trip back she had to make because and you talk about it being a seamstress. Could you just tell us that? I'll tell that you a wee story? snippet of it because that would be sort of one of my main signature stories. I don't often tell personal stories, but um, this was before I yeah. was born. People think I must be really old if I was in India. I wasn't, um, you know. They were on the Indian Ocean when the Second World War was declared, so the ships put into Mombasa in East Africa to have camouflage paint put on them. And the yeah. women and the children had these picnics on the beach with coconuts and sounded idyllic, but they knew they were going to have to face a lot of danger. They were waiting to see if Mussolini would come into the war because they had yeah. to go up through the Suez Canal um, past um, Italian Somaliland, I think it was called in those days. So mm. my mum made life jackets for my brother Keith, who was only two and a half, and for a wee baby belonged to another woman because the life jackets they had for the children were too big for these two. And then when they went back onto the boats, our family was supposed to be going on a boat called the Yorkshire, but they were transferred to one called the Britannia. And Mum had actually sent a postcard to her mother saying she was on the Yorkshire. Anyway, to cut a long story short, they made it to, you know, they came up around the coast of France and a German U-boat attacked them and the Yorkshire was torpedoed. And yeah. um, my mother's friend and her family were on that other boat. Our family, as you can know, because I'm here, uh, escaped and got home okay. But they heard about all these people who died and couldn't, the mother of the baby. And then when they got home, they were watching the Pathé news of survivors being brought up from the ship. And she saw my aunt carrying the little baby in the life jacket that she had made for him, for the girl. And, you know, that was the story I grew up with. And then when my mum was about 90, the BBC recorded some of her stories and we got an email in from a Mrs. Olive James who said, I was that baby. My mother was drowned and my father and I were rescued and brought to Bordeaux. So I think it's sort of a magical story that my mother got to hear it just about two weeks before she died. So, yeah, it makes the hair stand up in the back of my neck, even now and I've told it countless times, you know. Yeah, and when I read that, um, I just... I, yeah, I, I felt incredibly emotional. And and these kind of stories are all through your life. And I, I have to say, as a storyteller myself, reading your story, it is absolutely inspiring because 
your work in the library service is something that I, I'd love you to talk about. Mm, well, you know, I when I was at, at school, my dad died when I was 15. And the next year, my mother got me into my mother had to start to work. She hadn't worked out of the house all her married life. And she went and became a breakfast cook in a hotel. And then she became the housekeeper. And so I was in changing beds and stuff. And though I could do it, wasn't my favorite way of spending time so I applied and got a job working in the library as a summer library assistant and then I got the chance to go off to library school um, after my degree I did a postgrad in librarianship and I got a job working in libraries first of all the first couple of years near home here now this was in the early 70s which was a very tricky time to be in Northern Ireland mm. but in 76 I got uh, promoted I got the job as children's librarian for the city of Belfast, which nowadays is sort of unheard of mm. for a 25-year-old to get that. And, of course, I was mm. thrown right into it because Belfast in the 70s was a very violent place with bombing and shooting. And some people think all of Northern Ireland was like that, but where I was living at home was really quiet. So I had to adapt. And I was working with children who'd seen more and done more in their short lives than I'd seen and done in terms of violence and trauma. So I absolutely loved my job. I was Belfast Libraries for 14 years. Really, really loved it. And through that work, you started reading stories from a book, mm. but you but you progressed from that, didn't yeah. you? Well, I think there shouldn't be any conflict between the two arts. They're two different art yeah. forms. Yeah. Um, when I was at library school, they trained us how to share stories through picture books, to read picture books, but not just read them really. Yeah. read them with animation and there's a good way and a bad way of, of reading a story to anybody and then um I'd always my mum would have told me things I'd have listened to stories on Uncle Mac children's favorites like the three Billy Goats Gruff and the Runaway Train mm. and watch children's TV so I met my first American storyteller was a guy called Bob Gash and he told me that in America there was this association of storytellers which was just starting in the 70s and um that people got paid money for telling stories. I thought, that's interesting. And then it was, he didn't mm. use a book at all. So I put the books down. And of course, when you tell a story, as my daughter used to say, out of your mouth, you have much mm. more control. There's nothing between you and your audience. Uh, it can have a greater impact. So that's how I started telling stories, going from the picture book sharing, which I would still do on occasion if I'm trying to promote books to children. There's no better way. But I took it from that to... Um, sharing traditional stories which I love doing and then I suppose when did that happen that was in the 70s and then I organized a course for adults a one day course called yarn spinning who says storytelling is just for kids and over 100 people turned out for that and we had the wonderful John Campbell that I'd heard about he was a sheep farmer he wasn't doing much storytelling um and Pat Ryan, who had become a friend, um, American storyteller, who was teaching at that time in England, and he came as well. And from that, we started a monthly series in the mid-80s, and we went on then. Tolly Carnet Yarn Spinner started in 1991. It's going to be 30 mm. years old in February. So that mm. club's been running for 30 years. Wow. Do you think that as a storyteller... Um, because you should you part of your work should be to set up other kind of gigs for storytelling generally do you think that's part of um what we should be doing well it depends on the storyteller some people just are busy enough 
forging their own career, you know, but I've been yeah. telling stories for 47 years now and storytelling has been very good to me. So it's always been part of my brief to try and promote storytelling throughout the community. And I'm sure at some stage yeah. you'll talk to me about the Armstrong Trust, but even when yeah. I was younger, I mean, I wanted to make places where people could come together to share stories because in Ireland, the pub is a place where people would go, but we don't actually take our storytelling that seriously. It's just something that everybody does. It's only when you go to other places and you hear how much they enjoy Irish storytelling, you think, oh, you know, we do have something here. We have a continuous tradition. It, people talk about the revival. It never really died here. I mean, people were telling stories, but they weren't gathering publicly because stories would be part of, you would tell stories, share music. And that's what I like. I like storytelling not to just be sitting by itself in an ivory tower. It's part of a community. It's what communities do. Yeah, because you say that in your book, some, something alike, um, that you believe in the power of um, working with stories to strengthen communities. Mm. Well, I've, I've yeah. seen it in action. You know, I'm not, you know me fairly well, Marie. I'm not a yeah. woo-woo person who talks about, you know, <laughs> storytelling can change the world. I'm not one of those people, but I do believe that storytelling is a very, very powerful tool. And you can't use stories, but you can work with stories. I hate people saying, I use storytelling for this. I No, I don't use storytelling. I work with stories. And when you work with stories and with communities, to part of it with me is to encourage people to share their own stories, to um, make a place for people who don't get the opportunity to tell stories. And there's a huge thing now about personal storytelling, things like the moth and so on. And some of that can be a wee bit self-indulgent, you know, look at me, look what I've got. It's the quiet people I like, the people who may have extraordinary stories, but no outlet for them. And I like to make a place. And that's one of the reasons I've done this book. Uh, Although, you know, I wanted to sort of tell my story. There are people in that book who have long since gone but I'm holding their stories I think it's a very valuable thing and I want to remember them by sharing their stories I think that's it yes and and you know Liz years ago I think before I knew you mm-hmm. um I read the the healing heart oh, yes, communities uh-huh. yeah um that's by new society publishers mm-hmm. if people are still interested Alison in getting Cox, that a friend of mine that's from, it um she lives on one of the islands off in Seattle Sound. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah, book. recommend. There's one on communities and there's one on families, and they're both excellent. And but your work with communities is uh, um, is extraordinary, actually. Um, and one of the things that you write about is that the work that you did during the pro the peace process. How did you? How did that happen? How did that come about? Um, I suppose. I'm part of this community and we have a very divided community. I grew up Protestant. Um, I grew up in a police and army family and yet I'm working with people who believe very passionately that Ireland should be united and that, you know, they have a totally different outlook. I mean, I'm not saying what my outlook is now, but that's the background I grew up in. Um, Mm -hmm. And people were getting killed over the religion they were and that just seems so stupid to me because it wasn't about religion it was about nationality it was about so much more so I I like to engage with communities and get into when you hear another person's point of view I told a story in the healing heart you maybe remember about the two warriors it's an original story by Dan Ketting and the punchline of that is it's 
very difficult to hate somebody once you know their story. And the more other people's stories I heard, this is why the danger of a single story, I'm sure you've heard that, there's a talk about that. You, you have to start and open your mind and listen to other people's stories, whether you're talking, as you know in the book, I talk about like racial relations, Black Lives Matter, all of this stuff. It's, no matter what the subject is, you have to listen to another viewpoint other than your own, otherwise you're going to be totally blinkered. So that's how I got into it, I suppose. But listening to other people's stories. Plus, we were having children who could not come to the library because it was dangerous on the streets. So we took storytelling out to them. We did, I organised a programme of storytelling out in the community and that worked very well indeed. I remember reading that part and thinking how brilliant it was (laughs) that you were that innovative. And also, I have to say, Liz, if I'd have been one of those, because you sent, they sounded like they were young people, like they must, they must have also been a bit frightened. Well, that's it. I interviewed them all and I'd say to them, well, they were mostly students. Do you know the city? And they'd say, we know the university area. And I'd say, well, we're not really going to be telling stories in those areas. And I made them agree that they would go anywhere in the city it didn't matter if they were Protestant or Catholic I would send them anywhere a bit more careful about the boys who would have been more at risk perhaps you know um, sad to say but it was a fact and I have the most amazing crowd I'm still in touch with lots of them one of them is a Queen's Council and one of them is a film director very successful and a couple of them have been school principals I think it really stood them in good stead because they saw nature raw and teeth and claw You know, they were on the streets passing burning buses and going into communities where most people in Northern Ireland wouldn't have gone. But we sent the storytellers in there. Ah, it was terrific. It was really good. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It just sounded fantastic. It's like the Pony Express. We always got through, you know. (laughs) Yeah, isn't that amazing? Um, There was a a little story you told about yourself, actually, when you went out and you were telling a group of children, the three Billy Goats Gruff. Yeah, Yeah. I'll tell you that one. Well, that was, um, there was a summer scheme, the Alliance Hardoin summer scheme. And when I got out to tell stories, the the community centre wasn't there. It had been blown up. The place we were supposed to be telling stories was just like a pile of glass and rubble. But the kids were all there waiting for the stories, so I put them up on a a wall and I had the big picture book lovely picture book good illustration three billy goats gruff and I'm trip trap trip trap over the bridge over the bridge and a police an armor plate at police land rover came down the street and my audience two a boy and girl hopped off the wall picked up stones and started throwing them and I'm standing there with my book going excuse me I'm from the library I'm a nice person I don't know who these children are they're not with me but almost like magic when it went away they came back and sat and I just went on with the story because like, what else would you do? Because no matter how fast our society forces children to grow up, they're children. They're children who want to hear the end of a good story. So I think that's yeah. very important. A- absolutely. There was another another big part of your book, and part of your life is the barn. <laughs> because the other thing that, you know, obviously Dave and I have been to the barn and we love it. Um, and what you've done there is exceptional. And I, I think I said to you in probably one of my last emails or texts or whatever, is that the barn is almost like a character in itself in, in, in your book. I'll do a so book please... about that. I think I have to do a book about the barn all by itself. Well, what happened was I wanted a place where I could tell stories and bring yeah. people for storytelling and workshops and so on. So yeah. I had been living in what was the former matrimonial home for 27 years. Like people said, it was like Miss Haversham with my my 
purple walls and my white um, furniture and my, <laughs> my burnt amber, uh, my lovely orange, burnt orange uh, rise and fall lamp. It was very 70s. Anyway, yeah. and I really didn't care for the house anymore. So I was driving to a school in Cushendall and I saw a for sale sign in the middle of nowhere. And I thought, oh, that looks interesting. When I asked the people, they said, oh, you wouldn't want to live up there. Oh, no, no, no. Snow in the winter, midges in summer. But anyway, I went to get, I got the key. And when I came here and stepped into this house where I'm sitting, I just thought, I have to live here. It was the maddest thing I've ever done, probably in my life. And it was done within two weeks because the people were so delighted to sell it to somebody. It had been on the market for six months. I bought it within, I put a bid on two days after seeing it which they snapped up I put my house up for sale the week later and a friend of mine came and said goodbye to me sat in the yard for about an hour and I went out and said is everything all right and she said no I want to buy your house so she bought my other Mm -hmm. house so it was done and I thought what have I done I bought this derelict property the house was sort of livable but the rest of it was just terrible and uh, I did it and I've created Ballyham and Barn which is a tourist hostel it's got self-catering apartment it's got a um, a session house where in normal times we do workshops and all sorts of um, creative writing and all storytelling music so it's mine and now I'm sitting here in splendid isolation <laughs> <laughs> yeah for the moment only for the moment mm-hmm. but you know but you have people from all over the world don't you mm-hmm. come to the barn yeah, I think we've maybe 40 countries I think have been I try and keep a note and try and put pins on a map but yeah tourists backpackers people of all ages the young backpackers because it's cheap older people who come to our apartment for a wee bit more luxury and it works really well and oh gosh Liz Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah I love it I love the barn but also reading um one of your chapters there was uh a story that actually really, I, I, I cried. I did cry. Well, actually, I cried quite a few times reading the story because there's so many moving it's moments you in it. my PR person. This is <laughs> It's great, Liz. Honestly, I think people really will love reading the so. book. But, but, in, but the barn, um, you, there was a story where you have a group of things were all going wrong. And these Polish oh, workers came. Oh, my boys, came. yes. Oh, I was so moved by this. That's towards the end. Yes. Will I tell the story? Or yeah, do you want please. to ask me about it? I'm all right. If, um, no, you you tell us, you okay. tell us. Well, I was at the Festival at the Edge. I think you were there too, Maria, uh, yeah. over in Shropshire. And I, I'm, I treated myself to this luxury hotel. It was gorgeous. And I was lying in bed. And my phone pinged. And I know people shouldn't have their phone on in the middle of the night. But it was my bar mind to say all the water had dried up. And I went, what? So I had to like drive to Liverpool, fly home, get that sorted out. And I was in despair because the water had dried up. And I was to have this team of Polish workers come and stay. And it was really good. It was a good booking. They were going to stay for three weeks. And there was about nine of them. But anyway, my local farmer gave me a big cube, 500-gallon cube of water. I can't do it in cubic. And... Uh, the Polish turned up and I'm in tears at the stage saying oh water dried up and they said no worry Lisa no worry Lisa we will help you Lisa we will help you and I went thank you and these big strong men they filled buckets of water they did all that so that was okay so we got on famously then I came home (laughs) I came home one day and they were bringing two bicycles out of the back of their van and one of them had a big bandage around his head and I said what happened and they went Oh, he fall off bicycle. And I go, okay, has he been to hospital? Yes, yes, hospital. I said, fine. So I went into the house and about an hour later, 
the main man who spoke good English knocked at my door and said, we must go to hospital. He hadn't been in the hospital. So I trailed him up to the hospital. He got sorted out. That was good. But then they were coming to the end of their time and they asked me, could they do anything, any jobs around the place? Well, you know my house, Maria, plenty of jobs, especially for big, strong workmen. So they took stuff off to the dump and everything. And I said, would you like to have dinner? And they went, what? And I said, we will make dinner for you. I had a couple of helpers here and we made a big dinner they said we will buy alcohol boy did they ever but that's another story so and over the mail they told me that in seven years they'd been traveling around europe nobody had ever offered them a meal nobody had ever offered to cook for them and i just thought oh that is so sad and they were great guys they were great big strong guys they had shown me pictures of their children and one of them could speak german to my german girl and it just typifies i suppose this place in a way where um, I don't like the term melting pot because I like people to keep their individuality, but we're a meeting point for people from lots of different backgrounds and that worked really well. Yeah. Well, you're a very generous hearted person, Liz. And, um, you know, one of the things that I you have taught me is that um, I sometimes forget to acknowledge when I'm telling a story who told me that story. But when I do hear it, when I remember uh, and I try to do it every time I, I tell, but not always. I hear your voice in my head because I think you're really particularly good at um, ac- acknowledgement mm. and who told the who told you the story. Um, well, you know, I'm, I'm like everybody else. I'll hear a great story and I say, "Oh, Maria, that's a cracking story. I'd love to tell that story." But I like yeah. to try and find out where the story came from, and you know, you don't want to be ripping people off. Yes. Certainly, nobody should ever tell anybody else's personal story. But, you know, if Dan Ketting says to me, Liz, you have permission to tell the two warriors, I'll tell the two warriors, you know. Sure, and I got sure. permission to even publish it from him, very generous of him. But there's yeah. older people who have gone now, and I'm following in their footsteps, and I want to keep their memory alive. But there's nothing worse. I remember a story that um, my colleague Billy Tier and I used to work together, and we got this story which he put a whole new ending on. You know, and I was away at a festival and I heard somebody tell it with his ending and I thought the only way, you know, they don't even acknowledge that that wasn't the original ending of the story, that was his personal thing. And then one, I was at the festival at the edge years and years ago and I told a story that I'd worked on for ages. Um, Quite a long story, Jack and um, no Kathleen, her greyhound husband. And I heard that that was told in London three days later. And the only way that could have been told is if somebody recorded me and then regurgitated it, which is showing no respect for the story, for me, for putting their own stamp on it. And that may seem a little bit petty, but I think it's quite an important thing. So I think even if somebody says, oh, Liz Weir told me this story and she said she'd tell you, you know, grand, but I'm not too precious. Joseph Sobel was on our our, our um session last week and did a very funny story about the signature story and so on but I think there's a serious point to that I think that um it might be a folk tale but it's nice to say this is Liz's version of the folk tale this is Maria's version of the folk tale you know and I think that's a very important thing it's just etiquette it's etiquette it's not law it's more etiquette yeah I think the right thing I am a goody two-shoes as you know if you've read the book yeah (laughs) (laughs) but I think that's really useful for 
uh, people like you and I to be able to, when we're working with young storytellers, to, to, to kind of pass these things on to them too. And you've worked with a lot of your barn minders. And interns. Uh, and your interns, yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, I want to come to your your barn, your Ballyoman barn sessions that you now do virtually on a Saturday night. And there's lots of your interns, barn minders, uh, uh, um, people who are in their 90s. (laughs) They are exceptional. Those, I mean, to be honest, Liz, I think Dave and I have probably only missed one since the beginning of the and of that was lockdown. your birthday. You're allowed, to, and that was my yeah, birthday. Yeah, birthday. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, because they are absolutely. I'm Maria. You understand? <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah. You keep notes, but um, we love them. We love them because it's this whole. You what you've done is you've created a community of people across the globe, and we're having the crack together on a Saturday night. There's no sense of competition. It's very relaxed. It's very chilled. Mm. I mean, I'd love you to say a little bit about those virtual sessions. Yeah, well, I started off by saying that when this lockdown happened, I went into steep decline. I work a lot with people who suffer from mental health problems or depression. And I am the first to admit, yeah, I'm prone to depression. And I think it's important we talk about it. When we don't talk about it, it gets dangerous. So I talk about it. So I thought, what can I do? I'm missing the sessions. I'm missing the people. And then I heard about this new thing, Zoom. I'd never heard of Zoom in my life. And so I just started doing it. I'm a great believer. It's the same with the barn. If you build it, they will come. And so I just started and reached out to my friends. And now, like tonight, a guy who was on last week, Jared, playing the Tin Whistle, he's asked, can he invite his Tin Whistle class? So he's got another crowd of them coming. And I've no problem. I can I can host as many as we get. It is eclectic. People have to believe that when they come on, they're not going to hear always tip-top, totally professional stuff. But I think that's especially our Americans really like that about it. Because you have the 87-year-old tenor or you have the 85-year-old um, banjo mandolin player from down the road but then you have tim tingle choctaw storyteller you have brian on his trumpet you know you never know who's going to be on doing what you know and some of the stories might not be the best stories in the world and some of the people may not be the best performers in the world it doesn't matter my house when it's live anybody can do anything and we we have some characters here i sit and watch people's faces and i think i wonder how they're going to take this and you I believe, you see, as a storyteller, I believe, one, you need a bit of tolerance. You know, not everybody's wonderful. My friend Catherine Wellner now, who's been a friend of mine since the 80s, taught me years ago a quotation that says, how silent the woods would be if only the best birds sang. How silent the woods would be if only the best. So it does, you don't have to be tip-top brilliant. Everybody has to learn. I'm sure I was awful when I started out. I hear radio interviews where I'm awfully, awfully polite and my voice goes up. And You know, that's not who I am. I'm growing into who I am. It's taken me nearly 70 years. And that's why I suppose I want to do the book to get this stuff down. Because shades of mortality, who knows? I went into complete panic when COVID came in because I thought, I'm not ready to die yet. I don't want to die yet. I think yeah. I have a book to write. So at least that's done anyway. That's one thing ticked off the bucket list. Well, I tell you, there is so much in this book, so much about so many particular stories that are extremely moving. There's a lot of wisdom and stuff. But there's also, you know, Liz, I don't know whether you realised you were doing this, but there's all kinds of things about like um, Irish customs and mm-hmm. like there's, there's 
I, I, you know, you and I both go into community settings a lot, schools, universities, prisons, you know, mm, hospitals, all, all, yeah. all those, oh, you know, we know all of that. But one place, Liz, where I have not been is a, is a funeral parlour. Oh, that was a good one. Yeah. I've done that twice. I mean, yeah. It's the same guy yeah. had two funeral parlours and he had an open night at the funeral parlour. But what an excellent idea. Because most yeah. of us only yeah. had a funeral parlour when we're extremely distressed that a relative has died. We have to go and sort out funerals. You don't know, like, do you want it sat in line? Do you want pine? Do you want this? Do you want that? So, the idea was you'd come in and you'd have a look round. You could see a wicker casket. You could talk about cremation. You could, And I was brought in to tell stories. Well, obviously, I wasn't going to be too morbid, but there's quite a lot of funny stories about funerals and graves and things. So I was doing all of that. But it was interesting to see people bringing their grannies in, you know. And, but granny was having a say in what she wanted and what she didn't. And I think every family should have this conversation, I think. So that was good. But the freaky bit, which I'm sure you remember, was I came out to go. And it was just getting dusk. And all I heard was and these four black horses with black feather plumes drew this glass carriage and two men with top hats I mean I tell stories about that. I nearly freaked cars were nearly going off the road and this was a, a very stylish funeral which you can get using these beautiful horses a lot of our travellers would have would use them for their funerals because they love horses um so that was a very interesting night <laughs> yes those. yeah so I, i'm just very lucky to have been to some of the places i've been to and and it's not me 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 look at me how good I, I, i've been very lucky to be invited to i mean i went to an indian reservation in northern california i mean they let me go out and dig roots with them for making baskets and like, that was a brilliant thing you know i, I just love that and and no one is better than the other. And in, in the Northern Ireland context, being in the prisons enabled me to work with men who totally different uh, any sort of political views and upbringing from mine. And yet now I can go to Belfast and I'll meet people and they'll remember meeting me there. You know, some of them are in politics yeah. now. Yeah. So it's it's <laughs> my life story sort of focuses over the the years of the troubles and in the what we call the post-conflict era so i think storytelling has a part to play in all of this by sharing these stories you know yeah a friend was asked you, me last night or... was i going to be sued by anybody but i hope not <laughs> i think i've been respectful to most of the people i mentioned I think you have. And, and you know, it was an absolute pleasure when you received your MBA and congratulations on that. I, I think that was import, important for you, for all the work you've done, but also for storytelling. That's the thing. I'm not into trappings and um, the whole empire thing is very questionable, especially these days. But I just took it as a vote of confidence for storytelling. And Prince Charles presented me with that award and he was he seemed genuinely interested I mean he asked me about my work with people with dementia and he said how does that work and I told him how it worked he said I've been thinking about that a lot more myself as I've got older and I just talked to him person to person and he was absolutely I would just think he'd make a great king I really think he would and I'm not into royalty but I just thought he seemed genuinely into of course they have to be briefed on everybody but to stand there and to talk to all these different people about their different interests I thought I had to admire that I did admire that
Yeah, I think he wrote some children's stories, yes, didn't he? Did. he years he ago, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or something. Well, that's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well, a librarian, always a librarian. It's a librarian, yeah, of course. And I have to say, your mind works like a computer. If you want to know something, go go to Liz. <laughs> It'll be like two seconds later, you'll know where to go and what to do. Listen, Liz. Mm, oh, one I don't want to stop you. One of the hard things was, you know, there's a lot of personal stuff in this, and it's very hard to write about your personal life. Um, so. That's been quite a harrowing experience, but it's out now and it's there yeah. for everybody to read. So work away. <laughs> yes. And, um, you know, one of the things you say in your book, well, there's quite a lot of interesting things, but you say a storyteller must learn when to tell stories and when to keep quiet. I so laughed when I, because it's so true that Liz, um, it's actually when you're talking about, I think you were working with some children, there was a little boy saying, no stories, no stories. I um, feel like that sometimes myself, I do. Yes, and me. But later tonight, I will be coming to your barn session um, and I, I will be enjoying that very much. But for now, Liz, gosh, I can't believe how 35 minutes has flown by. I just want to say, used to say I was vaccinated with a gramophone needle, so that's what. <laughs> well, thanks so much. It's been brilliant. You know what? Perhaps we could do this again. Yeah. Hey, and you, I just want to say to anyone who's listening to the podcast, because Liz is in Ballyham and Barn, and I'm here in my house. Any extraneous noises like the doorbell or the dog? Uh, we've got to finish on Eric because he's. I know he's with you at the he moment. Is indeed. Just he's tell us this. Well, uh, one of the things a lot of people don't know about me is that I used to show and judge German Shepherd dogs. I was an international judge. I was always a bit mad. Um, I think nothing of driving 300 miles to court to a dog show, you know. So when lockdown happened, I was here all by myself. I was going for walks every day to keep fit. And a walk without a dog to me is a total waste. So I found Eric on a rescue site and I interviewed him by FaceTime. <laughs> I had to see him and then my daughter very kindly and she's like the COVID police she wouldn't come near me she sort of threw, threw the lead out to me and dropped him off so he's been my he's my new life's companion and he's a very good companion he doesn't talk back to me and he loves my stories yeah oh bless him well listen Liz thank you so much Pleasure. it's been brilliant talking to you look forward to the book coming out thanks very much it's going to be called Story Woman yeah and that's another story. But for now, Liz, we are. Thank you. Thanks, Maria. <laughs>